0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 and move on. A little bit into chapter 4. What really matters? I gave Barbara the sermon title the other day. I didn't hear that as a question, though it could be. What really matters? More of a statement for us today as a church, as a people, as individual Christians, this is what really matters. What matters? What does it matter what we do as a church or what any church does as a church what does it matter what we do or how we do it in the end isn't motive all that matters as long as the heart is in the right place as long as a church or a pastor or a movement or a person's heart is in the right place trying to do the right thing thinking they're doing the right thing isn't that all that matters It's not acceptable really in our society and really even in churches anymore. It's not really acceptable to talk about things we should do and things that we shouldn't do. Certainly in the culture. Who are you to say what someone else should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't love or practice? And we come into the modern church, we hear a lot of that same thing. Who are you to say what this church should do or what that church should do or what that church ought not to do? Say that's not nice. It's not politically correct. It's not a comfortable situation to be in to tell some other church or movement or pastor or believer what they should or shouldn't be doing. But I want to point out to you that that is exactly what we've seen to this point in Paul's letter here to Timothy. In fact, he has said just that. This is what you as a pastor should be doing. This is what your congregation should be doing. This is what you as a pastor should not be doing. This is what your congregation should not be doing. And when we read these words from the Apostle Paul, we better take a step back if we think that this is just some man's opinion. Well, that's just Paul. That's just the first century. It's not Jesus, it's not the voice of God, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's not a prophet, it's just Paul. We better re-examine our understanding of Scripture if that's how we see this. Because when we read the words of Paul, under the authority of the Lord Jesus himself, we are not hearing simply and merely the words of Paul. We are hearing the very words of Jesus. When an apostolic command comes, it comes with the full authority of God, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit himself. And so our question shouldn't be, does Paul have the right to tell us what to do as a church? The question is, doesn't Jesus have the right to tell his churches how to behave? Doesn't the Lord Jesus, as head of his church, have the right to tell us what to do and how to do it? Back in chapter 1, we begin with this whole thing, right? With, with Timothy. Timothy charge certain persons not to teach false doctrine anymore. So we see a charge to refute false doctrine. In chapter 2, we saw a charge to pray. I want the men to pray. Again, in chapter 2, we see roles for men and women in the church. What men are to do, what women are to do. Jesus tells us how to behave. Last week in chapter 3, we saw biblical church leadership. What God requires of elders or pastors and what God requires of deacons. Jesus telling the church what qualified leaders look like. So these come to us as more than the ideas of just a man. They come as Jesus commands to his people. His church then and his church today. We're going to finish up chapter 3 after those qualifications for elders and deacons. And we're going to go on into chapter 4. Begin reading with me in chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory." For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. Number one today, what really matters? Number one, truth matters. Truth matters. What we see in those opening verses. This is the reason it matters what we do and how we do it. Because on the line is truth itself. If we see the commands of Jesus and decide that we are going to disobey the commands of Jesus... That is not where the danger ends. The danger ends in that truth itself hangs in the balance. The opposite is also true. If we hear Jesus' commands and see his commands to the church and obey them, we can stand as a church for the truth of God. I want you to see what Paul says here in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. And I'm writing these things, verse 15, so that if I delay... You will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. See, Paul wants to come to them. He hopes to come to them. But this is so urgent. It's so important that they know these things now. So that even if he does delay, or even if he never gets there at all, which we have indication that he might not have, even if he never gets there, he writes these things because I need you to understand this as a church Timothy, I need you to understand this as a pastor right now. These things are necessary. When you see that phrase, how one ought to behave, the phrase is that one will know what is necessary. One will know what is required. One will know what they ought to do in the household of God. And this goes back to the authority issue, doesn't it? Who says Paul, you're saying these things. Who are you to say that this is how we ought to behave? This is what's necessary. This is our duty. Again, it goes back to the fact that this is not about Paul. This is not merely Paul's authority. This is not merely Paul's commands. He says this is about the household of God. Because this is the church of God. God is the head of this household. God is the head of this family, what the word really points us to. And the church is that, God's household, God's family, God's assembly, God's people. And all over that, as began each phrase, you heard it, whose is it? God's. And if God created it, and God is the one growing it and building it, Then God has the authority to tell the church, to tell his family, to tell his household how they ought to behave, as Paul says, how they ought to conduct themselves, what is necessary for the church, Paul says, of the living God. God can set the rules because this whole thing belongs to him. God can tell us what is true, God can tell us what is false. God has revealed to us what is true. He has revealed to us what is false. And He commands and calls us now to proclaim that to the world. God has the authority to demand what He wills of His people's leaders. That's why when we read these qualifications last week for elders and deacons, this isn't just Paul sitting around thinking what would make a good strategy for this place to have these leaders. No, this is Paul by the Holy Spirit delivering to the church of God what God's will is for the leaders in the household of God. It belongs to God. It's from God. And so God gets to set the rules. These days it is in vogue to gain favor with the world on behalf of the church. It's in vogue to avoid confrontation with society, to avoid the scorn of society that would look at a Bible-believing church and scoff or laugh or mock. And churches all around us, even in our town, our state, certainly our country and the world, are doing what they can to try to avoid the scorn and to avoid the mockery. And so what are they doing? distancing themselves from the very commands of God. Churches all around compromising, watering down what God has said, what God has revealed for his church, for his world, for his people. What? To gain the applause of men? To gain the approval of the lost? To be attractive to an unbelieving world? Churches and denominations and movements that do this will die a slow, agonizing death of irrelevance and uselessness. They might have a lot of people in the sanctuary. I'm not saying that they'll have to shut the doors. They just won't be a church anymore. They'll be a synagogue, the Apostle John says, of Satan. Satan. Those who water down and capitulate and compromise with the world and take away the very commands of the one who calls them to be what they are will die this slow, agonizing death of uselessness, like a house with no supports. My home church has, um, it's much smaller than this in, in North Carolina, and it has these big Um, buttresses that's what they are that come up from the side of the wall these big wooden beams and you can see them go up the wall and then curve along the wall meet and come down on the other side and this sort of serves as the hull of the church these buttresses if you've been in a a gothic baroque style cathedral you walked in the doors you look up these big huge vaulted ceilings and you'll see those curved buttresses these supports that uphold the building. And when churches abandon the truth of God, it's as if they're taking out one of those buttresses and one of those pillars and one of those foundations at a time. Isn't that what Paul says here? This is the household of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we see that the church's primary mission is to two things. Watch, hold up and hold out the truth of Jesus to the world. And when the church fails to hold up and hold out the truth of Jesus as a pillar, as a buttress, as a foundation, when the church fails to be that, it can't help but crumble in on itself. So many churches would water down, adjust, just tweak the gospel to suit the opinions and the ideas of the lost. So many churches and pastors would compromise, and in doing so, like I said, they're taking a sledgehammer just to one pillar after the other, after the other, after the other, until the whole thing falls in on itself. The priority of the church of God must be to hold up and hold out the truth of Jesus because truth matters. Truth matters. It's what we're here to do. It's what we're here to proclaim. It's what we're here to hold up. And that comes down to obedience. Will we hear the commands of Jesus? Will we read his words and hear his words to his church and obey them? And so hold up the truth for a lost world. I want to encourage you, when when deciding on a church or a family, when deciding on a household of God to belong to, whether that means you're visiting here or whether it means you ever leave from here to go somewhere else, you move to another church or move to another fellowship or another place where you must attend another church, this must be the priority for you. If you're listening or watching and you're looking for a church, this must be the priority for you. Listen, everything else, everything else is merely preference. The first Really, maybe the only question you must ask of a church is, does that church preach the truth of God's word? Does that church hold up the truth of God's word in obedience to God's word? Worship styles, facilities, programs, activities, church government, committees, this group, that group, all of it can fit your preferences. You can find a church that fits the shopping list that you devise for yourself. You can find all the check marks filled. But if this is missing, there is no word preached. There is no word proclaimed faithfully. All of it means nothing. The opposite is also true. If you find a church that preaches the truth, that preaches the word and obeys the word and is committed to doing that, That all the other preferences, though they might not meet your particular opinions and expectations, in the end, really don't matter. Our prayer at First Baptist Church, as you see when you walk in the front doors, is to be faithful to the word, faithful to the gospel, and faithful to the Great Commission. And if that's our desire and that's our prayer, to be faithful in those aspects that God has given the church to be faithful to, we must start where Paul starts. Obedience to the word. Paul says, if I delay in getting to you, you've got to know this, because you are the very household of God. Truth matters because obedience matters. Number two, the gospel matters. Paul says in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness... He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The center of all of this, the center of our church, the center of our mission, our calling, and our identity is here in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that Paul refers to this as a mystery. A mystery. I can't help every time I hear the word mystery or read the word mystery, but think of Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine. I don't know what comes to your mind, some, the, some book about mysteries, but every time I see the word mystery, no matter how holy and, and pious I'm trying to be reading the Bible, I just see the mystery machine and I think about Scooby Snacks and, and you rotten kids and all that stuff. That's what comes to my mind. But what Paul means when he says this word mystery Greek word mysterion is something hidden. That's what a mystery is. It's something hidden that needs to be revealed, something that needs to be uncovered. And when Paul uses the word mystery, most of the time he's referring to the gospel, something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. As I'm sure you've heard many a preacher say, "What is in the old concealed, the Old Testament concealed, is in the New Testament revealed." That's the mystery. What they were pointing toward, the shadows that we see in the Old Covenant, pointing us to Jesus, which is the revelation of who God is and what God wants for the world. So when Paul says this word mystery, we immediately know he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the good news of God. But he says it in a weird way. Great indeed, we confess, is this thing that was once hidden that is about godliness. And that's a christian word we throw around and use a lot, isn't it? Be godly. They're so godly. Godliness. What does it even mean, though? It means devotion to God. Think of it this way. It's Godward living. Godward thinking. That our life and our emotions and our passions and our efforts are Godward. They're toward him. That is what godliness means. And so you see, this is where Paul goes to describe what godliness is, the gospel itself. This is opposed to what these false teachers had been teaching that we read about in chapter 1. Paul says you need to charge these false teachers not to teach these things anymore. What things, Paul? These myths, he said, these endless genealogies. He says these are false teachings centered on works. When he said myths, remember we're maybe talking about some pagan influence in the church. Those coming from a Gentile Greco-Roman world and they're bringing in those mystery cult religions from their past. Whatever idol, whatever god or goddess they served, they're bringing that into the church. And the other side was the endless genealogies, which maybe pointed to some Judaizing influences. Those who would try to hold Christians to the old covenant law and traditions and rituals and so on. And Paul says, you got to watch out from both sides. It's coming from both sides, and both sides will distract you from the true gospel. Paul says to Timothy, refute those things, silence those things, and point to the true gospel, which is what he does here. That godliness is not wrapped up in those things. Godliness is revealed in what? That he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The mystery of godliness for Paul is not in dreams or visions nor is it in legalism and the law. Both of those place the emphasis on man. Whether you're coming from that pagan background and you're emphasizing these experiences and these visions and these dreams and the secret knowledge, or whether they're coming at it from this Judaistic background, Judaizing the church, saying, no, it's about the law and the ritual and the traditions. No matter which side you're coming at it from, Paul says it points you to yourself. My experiences, my effort, what I do, what I feel, what I think, what I have done. Where does Paul point us? Paul does not point us to me. He does not point you to you when he says this is the mystery of godliness. He does not say, do you want to know the secret of a godly life? Do blank. You want to know three steps to godly living? Do this, don't do this, don't do this. What does Paul say is the secret of godliness? He points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he summarizes it in these six lines. He says, He was manifested in the flesh. That is the incarnation. The Son of God becoming a Son of Man. Truly God becoming truly man in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, He was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a reference to the resurrection. How do I know this? Because Paul uses that same phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. That God vindicated Jesus by his Holy Spirit when he raised him from the dead. He came in the flesh. He rose from the dead. He was seen by the angels. Probably a reference to the angels at the time of the resurrection who recognized Jesus and who told the people that came to the tomb what had happened to Jesus. It was the angels who saw him first and said to the others who came, he is not here, he is risen, risen from the dead. He was proclaimed among the nations, something that was ongoing in the time of Paul. As the apostles, Paul himself, the other apostles, are going into the world, preaching the gospel to the world. As Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit, he was proclaimed on in the nations. He was believed on in the world. Not just as He being preached and as He being proclaimed in the nations, but as he's being preached, as he's being proclaimed, we see the Holy Spirit, Paul says, actually doing the work of bringing people to Jesus. That God is faithful to keep his promises. That as his word goes out and as the voice of the shepherd is heard, the sheep are coming. The Spirit is drawing them. He's believed on in the world. And we have this hope that he was taken up in glory. An assurance that Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father, praying and interceding for us. And just like the angel said in Acts chapter 1, he will come again in like manner. So summed up in these six lines is the entirety of the gospel. The incarnation, the life The death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. In short, Paul says, the mystery of God is no secret code for the select few. It's not for the elite who can figure it out, pagan or Jew. It is not based on rhetoric or feelings or personal experiences, or the laws and the traditions or observances of men. No, all that God is doing and all that he has done is revealed openly to the world in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says you should refute those who would point you anywhere else. Those who would say, you know what the secret to godliness is? And then go on to tell you something you've got to do, or you've got to be, or you've got to know, aside from the person of Christ, you refute it. And Paul says, refute it with the truth. Let me tell you something. In the modern church, there's so many pitfalls into this. Because what you may go to a church and hear that you must be and that you must do may sound empowering, It may sound very positive, it may be motivational and inspiring, but let me warn you today that a message of the gospel, called the gospel, apart from the work of Christ and centered on you, will end in death. Because you are not capable, and I am not capable of finding salvation in and of myself. And any preacher or pastor or church or movement or denomination that would stand and say, You can, you will, be better, do better, try harder, and present that as if that's the gospel, all they're doing is setting up each and every one of their hearers for despair, for failure, and maybe even outright apostasy. Why? Because at the end of the day, somewhere, no matter how empowered, And no matter how positive and no matter how inspired those people may be, at the end of the day, they're going to fall and they're going to fail. And if their hope of salvation is built on what they've been doing and what they've been feeling and what they've been experiencing, what do you think is going to happen to their view of salvation, their security, their assurance in that moment? Paul says these myths, these genealogies, the laws, the traditions, the rituals, the experiences, there's no hope there. As Zane read earlier from Philippians chapter 3, if anyone had any reason to boast in experience, it would have been Paul. If he had any reason, if anyone had any reason to boast in what they've done or what they feel or what they've experienced, it would have been Paul, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, blameless. What does Paul say all of it was? Garbage. Garbage trash compared to what to knowing Christ if your hope is in your works your experience what you can do what you can be you need to realize this morning that's a pile of garbage but if you will just look to Christ his person his work his sinlessness, his death, his resurrection, exactly where Paul points us, you'll see that the gospel is not so much about doing as it is what has been done. The gospel is not so much about doing as it is what has been done. I'm going to ask you this morning, what clamors for your trust and your faith What's out there trying to grab your attention and distract you from this gospel? Maybe it's temptation. Maybe it's sin, worldliness, fleshly lust, all those things we're used to in the church. But maybe it's something a little more seductive, a little more deceitful. Maybe it is self righteousness. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's anger, pride. I have this figured out. I can do this. I'm doing pretty good. Sounds a lot like the tax collector in the temple, doesn't it? I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like those other people. False doctrine and false teaching can sneak into our minds that way, too. The modern church's obsession with self, positivity, be better, do better, is nothing but a dead end. This morning, I want to point you where Paul points you, to Jesus alone for your security, for your assurance of salvation, for your hope. And that's why Paul says the church is like support beams, a foundation that holds up and holds out the truth as it is in Jesus. Truth matters because the gospel matters. Number three, don't swerve. Don't swerve verse 4 chapter chapter 4 verse 1 says now the spirit expressly says in later times that some will depart from the faith devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared he says deceitful spirits i mean he's referring to demonic activity for sure but that word deceitful means that which is wandering Leading astray, going askew. It reminds us of what we saw in chapter one, doesn't it? That those who have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, these false teachers that are ensnaring people in their web of lies, what did Paul say they were doing? They were wandering away, they were veering off course. And remember that image in chapter 1 verse 19 that Paul said be careful because they will make shipwreck of their faith and they will make shipwreck of your faith as a ship veering and wandering off course. And that's exactly what he pictures for us here about these deceitful spirits that lead us astray and cause us to wonder. And we see some of the content of this false teaching here don't we? As Paul begins to unpack what these people say and what these people are teaching, we see these contrasts. First of all, look in verse 1 again. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. What did Paul say the truth of the gospel was in chapter 1, verse 4? Godliness, which is from God. Now you set those two at odds with one another, don't we? These are deceitful spirits who teach the doctrines of demons. As opposed to the gospel of God, which is from God. And Paul's point to us here is that false doctrine and false teaching is never a matter, listen, of mere personal opinion or differences. False teaching and a false gospel is never merely a difference of opinion or personal differences on doctrinal issues. False doctrine and false teaching is satanic and hellish. And it is a cancer that will kill a church. It ensnares people. It traps people. And it's not just a different way of looking at the Bible. We have plenty of those. We're talking about those on some Wednesday nights this summer. Different ways that people have approached doctrine and different issues in Scripture. We're not talking about those issues. The gospel itself, the central primary issues of what make us Christians and believers, Paul says those are not up for grabs. There's not just a difference of opinion there. We're talking about truth or error, heaven or hell. And he sets up another contradiction here in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 5? The aim of our charge is love that issues, listen, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We compare that true gospel, pure heart, sincere faith, good conscience from God. We compare that to these deceitful spirits leading astray, wandering, insincere hearts and consciences that have been seared. This is the false teaching that Paul wants us to refute. Because it's a danger to those who teach it and it's a danger to those who will swerve as they listen. And the content here in verse 3 shows us a little bit about what Paul was dealing with. Those who forbid marriage, who require abstinence from certain foods. You know, isn't it funny that when people, over the ages of the church, when people discover the secret to godliness that you never knew before, isn't it funny that it's all kind of the same stuff? If I wasn't a preacher, I'd say it's the same stuff, in a different bucket. It's the same pile of garbage, it's the same trash, it all appears different. Oh, we found the secret, we found the key, we found the code, we found the thing. You never knew it, you need to know it, only a select few know it, and this is what, this is real godliness here. But it all ends up being the same thing. And it sounds an awful lot like this. Forbid marriage, encourage celibacy, abstain from this food, abstain from that food, worship on this day, do this thing, observe this feast. It's exactly what it all sounds like all the time. And here's what it does, and here's how you know it's false doctrine. Because it divides us from them on these things. Whether it's forbidding in marriage, insisting on celibacy, depriving yourself to reach some higher level of knowledge. In Paul's world, it was pagan, what we call asceticism. Pagan asceticism. Forbidding marriage, insisting on celibacy, depriving yourself. For these Judaizing influences, it was abstinence from certain foods, insisting on certain feasts and observances, encouraging people to obey the law to reach God. And the content never changes, does it? It all comes in different packages. It comes with different names. But it all ends up being the same stuff. In the modern church, I just kind of delineated this into three, what I call, tendencies. Is that okay? charismatic the charismatic tendency the charismatic tendency emphasizes personal experience visions dreams experiences miracles that's that charismatic tendency that emphasizes those things as oh that is real godliness right there believe it or not in the 21st century church we still have these judaizing tendencies that emphasizes the old covenant rituals that presumes upon the church to enforce the old covenant feasts or observances or dietary laws. How about the legalistic tendency that emphasizes rules and regulations and moralism and that Christianity is nothing more than a list of do's and don'ts. And don't get me wrong, there are aspects of all of these that are important for us to know, experience, and understand. But when someone takes either of those tendencies and says, this is godliness. This is what you really need to be a mature Christian. Here's the secret. Here's the mystery. You notice they miss one big thing. That in every single aspect, Jesus is God missing. And when you ask Paul what the mystery of the gospel was, it's Jesus every time. That's an easy answer for Paul. We can talk about charismatic gifts. We can talk about the old covenant. We can talk about the law. We can talk about it all day long, Paul would say. But if you want to know the secret of godliness, the way to heaven, the way to abundant life, it is Jesus. Jesus. He is the center of it all for Paul, the center of it all for this church in Ephesus, the center of it all for us. Paul would point away from himself. He would point you away from yourself and point you to Jesus, his person, his work. You got to watch out for this stuff. Paul deals with the same stuff in the book of Colossians. We preached through that last year. Go back and listen to some of that. It deals with a lot of this same stuff. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not eat. Do not drink. Do this. Do this. Do this. Experience. Experience. And it says, here is real godliness. Here's the secret. Here's the mystery. And it's everything but Jesus. And I want you to look at how dismissive Paul is of this in verse 4. Look at how easy it is for him to dismiss these things. We know That everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's simple. Paul says, here's how you deal with that supposed secret, that supposed mystery, all the legalism, all the stuff. Dismiss it. It's silly. We know that everything is good, Paul says, for those who believe, those who pray, those who bless their food. Everything is to be received with thankfulness, Paul says. This is no secret. This is no mystery. It's just more man-made stuff to distract and to cause you to wonder and to swerve. And Paul says, watch out for it. How many souls this morning are lost? How many believers are caused to fall into despair, to fall into hopelessness because of this? Because of a pastor or a preacher or a teacher or a church or a movement that takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on anything else. I want to ask you this morning, what has taken your focus off of Jesus? Maybe it's literally some form of false teaching. Maybe today you've been listening, watching, reading taking in people and preachers and teachers who are teaching this very stuff that needs to be refuted and done away with. I would encourage you, go home. I can't, if someone takes this out of context, I'd be the, the book-burning pastor. Go home and burn those books, throw them away, get rid of them, turn the TV off, change the channel, change the radio channel, and get back into the truth of God's word. Refocus to Jesus. Refocus to the gospel. Refocus to the truth. Maybe that's you, and you've actually been caught up in false teaching or false gospel. Maybe this morning you're caught up into legalism, and you think that your way to God is by your performance, that you have to obey to a certain degree before you're acceptable to God, that you have to do a certain number of steps before you can be a Christian or come to Christ. Either way, I want you to see that the focus is you, your behavior, Your stuff, your obedience, your experiences, whatever it is, it keeps coming back to you. And Paul says you're looking to the wrong person. Throw it all in the garbage heap as Paul did and look to Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Whatever your distraction today, false gospels, false teachings, wrong priorities, Paul says look no further than yourself. That's where the problem is. And he would encourage us, along with the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's run the race that is set before us. Set aside the obstacles, set aside the weights and the burdens, and run the race that is set before us, keeping your eyes on Jesus, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Don't get off course. Quit shifting the focus back to you, your circumstances, your suffering, your experiences, your sin, your priorities. Look to Jesus. Unbelievers here this morning, you're looking for salvation. You want to know what you've got to do to get to heaven, what you've got to do to get some hope and some joy and some peace. Paul would say it's actually not something that you need to do as something that has been done for you, and if you will stop looking to yourself and at yourself, and you reject your sin and your own self-righteousness, and if you will just look to Jesus, there you'll find hope. There you'll find life in what has been done. Unbeliever, your sin will not keep you away from God. And what I mean by that is if you repent of your sin and turn from it, God will have you. There's nothing you've done, nothing you've said, nothing you've been in that precludes or prevents you from coming to Jesus today. Your sin will not keep you from God. The other hand, your righteousness, your righteousness will not get you to God. Only Jesus gets you to God. Look away from yourself. Look to him, his person, his work, what he's done. There is the mystery of godliness revealed, hidden no more, in the face of Jesus. Look to him today and be saved. Amen. Thank you, God, our Father, for this opportunity to hear from your word. And thank you that it cuts To our very souls, our very hearts. It reveals our foolish self-righteousness, our arrogance, that we would presume upon your grace and your mercy because of anything that is in us. Lord, we lament this morning and we mourn that so many people have been deceived By some false teaching, some false gospel that would have us look to ourselves. And all the different forms that it takes and all the different ways Satan knows how to manipulate and twist it. We pray for those who are under a bondage of false teaching. Who are under the bondage of a false gospel. We pray for them today, maybe in this very room, that you would rescue them. By your Holy Spirit, you would wake them up, turn the light switch on, cause them to look to Jesus even right now. God, for believers in this room, believers that are listening and watching, that are lost in hopelessness or despair, they've fallen into some sort of temptation, they're far from you, and they don't think they can come back to you, help them this morning to understand that it's not about them in the first place. It's about what you have done through your Son, Jesus And because of that, you welcome the prodigal home each and every time. God, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. Turn our attention to Jesus today. Reset our focus on him away from us. Fix our hope on him, our joy, our peace, our life, our salvation. Fix it on him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.